we need to spend less money in general. So if we're taking all this federal money and we're contributing to Washington DC style spending and printing to be able to fund our initiatives, then we're contributing to the inflation just as much as any of the other states and just as much as the Biden administration. Welcome to the Local Yokel Idaho podcast. My name is Tyler, and today we have Nicholas Kleinworth, who is the policy analyst for the Idaho Freedom Foundation. His area expertise covers many topics, but from his time doing IFF's Financial Friday series, he is well-versed in Idaho's government spending. I reached out to him last week to see if he would like to come on the podcast and walk me and all of you through the financial things happening with the legislature this session, plus maybe narrow down what we should keep our eyes on and keep our representatives accountable for. Thank you so much for coming on, Nicholas. Hey, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I'm super glad you were able to come on and accept being able to help walk us through some of this stuff. Yeah, not a problem. I mean, that budget book is <laughs> its a really dense uh, piece of reading material. So I'm glad that I can share the, the, the studying that I had to do for this legislative session. Thank you. And before we get into it, what all do you do at the Idaho Freedom Foundation? So I actually do a lot of different things, and my role is actually changing at the Idaho Freedom Foundation. We we're undergoing some organizational changes. Uh, we have a new president, and with that, I'll actually be their next uh, policy director at the Idaho Freedom Foundation. So that's really exciting. But in my current role, I work on a very wide range of policy issues. Um, we essentially had an education department and we had an everything else department. So I was in the everything else department. <laughs> and so that meant that I got to do everything from healthcare policy to Bitcoin policy and other small things like that. And then that's really useful for is budget analysis. And so that's usually what occupies most of my time during a legislative session. Nice. Yeah, I could totally see that. I know here with local Yokel Idaho, there's definitely all these categories and stuff. And then there's the, oh yeah, there's the other things. There's the net that will catch <laughs> anything else that doesn't fit in the normal silos, which is kind of funny and also interesting to see that that also happens over there. And I guess on that vein, what kind of got you interested or started with IFF? Well, I started as an intern for IFF a few years ago, actually, and I just kind of worked my way up. Interestingly, IFF didn't even have internships when I started. I met Wayne Hoffman up in Coeur d'Alene. He was doing a speaking event, and I had asked him if they did internships. And he said, no, 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 we don't do any internships. But if you send me an email with what you're looking for, I can see what I could do. And so then he invited me to come down and start working over the summer, and they liked me enough to want to keep me. Nice. And so I take it you're from that area up there in Coeur d'Alene, right? Yes. My family lives up in Naples, but um, at the time we lived in Coeur d'Alene. I'm not super familiar with the area. So Maples, is that like northwest, east of Coeur d'Alene? Because I know where Coeur d'Alene is at. So Naples is about an hour and a half north of Coeur d'Alene. It's probably the last town that you'll hit before you drop down into Bonner's Ferry. Okay. It's super pretty up there. I, I will admit that the valley there, Coeur d'Alene gives me a lot of feelings of like eagle i don't know if you've seen those comparisons at all yeah it's definitely it's a growing area kind of like eagle where it started out as a lot of farmland and you're, you're kind of seeing the the growth of the cities across the prairie it's grown a lot since my family's lived up there and it, it's kind of sad to see to see all that go but the area is growing and prospering and the people that are moving in seem to uh love the state so yeah, I mean, it seems to be the whole story across the whole state. I think people 
generally in the state of Idaho are experiencing exactly that. But transitioning back to IFF and stuff, what got you interested in politics and wanting to work on it? Because I know some people, it was just like, I knew a friend and they started taking me to events and then I saw the value of it. And then other people were like, no, from a young, very young age, I knew I needed to want to be in politics. And so that was just the path they wanted to go on. I was one of those accidental cases that, that ended up in politics. I actually went to school as a pre-med student. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a physician in rural mm. Idaho. And what ended up happening was when COVID happened, the hospitals were cutting programs that they didn't absolutely need. Of course, the internships are the first thing to go. And so I had already been on the political science track because what you find is that Idaho has so few physicians that it's not uncommon to find yourself in a situation where you're the only physician in a certain geographical area or only physician in the county. And so you kind of by default become the policy expert for that area. And I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be thrown to the wolves and not know what I was doing. So I wanted kind of a public health, um, public policy kind of background uh, to complement my uh, medical education. And so during that COVID summer, I did political science internships instead with the McClure Center at the University of Idaho. And then they, that just kind of sparked it and continued to build on that and get more internships. And then eventually that internship with IFF kind of solidified it and said, nope, you're on, you're on this path now. Right. It's, it's so funny sometimes. Uh, you think you're going to go one way and then all of a sudden it either goes the complete opposite way. I know for myself, it's actually like a flip. The things I usually dislike the most sometimes when I first come into them are then the things that I love and enjoy the most. And so it's kind of funny how sometimes the Lord does that, where he puts us in places we didn't see, but it's still so fruitful for us. And it, it's really great that uh, the Lord kind of guided me down this direction, too, because I ended up in, in the process. I did an internship in Washington, D.C., too. I would have never met my wife if I never did that internship in D.C. And so now now we have a baby and um, it's just been an absolutely wonderful uh, thing. So I, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, sweet. So moving into our questions and discussions here to try to explain and help both me and probably the viewer as well to understand how Idaho spending in this legislative session, we'll start off with a big picture. How is Idaho doing financially? Are we doing good? Are we being responsible with our spending and have like a lot of surplus or are we in the red? I think it's a more nuanced question than a yes or no, actually. So we're actually doing pretty good financially. We're projecting revenues up year over year. This last fiscal year, we ended up breaking about $5.6 billion in general fund revenue. And what general fund revenue is, it's basically all the money that the state's deriving from your Idaho income tax, your business income taxes, those sales taxes that you pay on your groceries and other things that you purchase, and then any sort of fees and things like that that you end up paying to the state. So like businesses will end up having to pay fees to the Secretary of State's office for running their business and things like that. So all that goes into the general fund. Um, and it's quite healthy and been quite healthy over the last few years. But what you'll notice, though, is that we're, we're raking in $5.6 billion. But the budget proposal that we're looking at for this next fiscal year is uh, more than $13 billion. And so you're wondering where the difference is. Well, a chunk of that is dedicated funds. And so those are just funds that are created in statute for specific purposes. So we have uh, several specific funds for public education, infrastructure, all these like sub programs. Um, we have the like categories. Workforce. Right. And so 
And those funds can sometimes generate their own revenue, but they can also automatically get money from the general fund. And that doesn't get included in the general fund revenue. It gets split before it actually goes into that bucket. But that's still not even close to the 13. So the difference that we're seeing being made up is actually with federal money. And so about 40% of Idaho's budget actually comes from Washington, D.C. It doesn't come from Idaho taxpayers and from Idaho sources. And so a good chunk of that ends up being entitlement programs like Medicaid. But then you end up with a lot of other grant programs like ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act, the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act, and then the Inflation Reduction Act. And it's not a very well-named bill, especially because it... um, Spending solves inflation. That makes sense. Exactly, exactly. So (laughs) what we have is a lot of federal money supporting programs that we otherwise wouldn't be able to afford with Idaho sourced revenues. So we have about $1.3 billion total in what we call in different reserve funds for rainy days, for if there are any issues with the state budget. All of this indicative of the fact that we're really dependent on the Washington, D.C. style spending and borrowing system to be able to support a lot of our projects. And then here in Idaho, because we're taking so many federal dollars and we're able to take a lot of the money that we're getting from Idaho source revenue and we're just putting it into the coffers. And we're preparing for an economic downturn, but the problem is that's your money. And there was a bill that passed last year, House Bill 292. If we ever had any surpluses, we have a surplus eliminator and that's supposed to go to property tax relief. So if people overpay in their taxes, it's supposed to come back. But it, if, if it gets put into the coffers like that, then it never adds ends up making it all the way back to the taxpayer. So those things are concerned. I I guess the bottom line is we're spending a bit more than we're making, but we're not quite in a California-style situation where they ended up with nearly a $100 billion surplus, and then they spent it all on permanent programs, ongoing programs, and then the very next year it turned into a $31 billion deficit. And so... We're better off than that, but we're relying on the federal government to sustain it. That's a really great point that you brought up about the federal government. I was going to ask on that, but you already answered that question about how much of that 5.6% was coming from the Fed. That should be something we should try to move away from so we can stand our own two feet. Because I think as conservatives in the states, we should be able to stand our own two feet and say yes or no to the federal government. The federal government shouldn't be... There should be uniformity, right? We're a union. We're supposed to get along and stuff. But on the other hand, we need our own independence to say things. That really is a big issue. The federal government has the right to tell you how to spend the money that they're giving you. And what we end up running into are a lot of problems where last year I wrote an article about how the Biden administration was going to take away school lunch funding if Idaho's public schools didn't comply with their uh, transgender bathroom policies and things like that. And I, I don't know where the viewers stand on those, but I guess the point is that there are strings attached to the money. And if you're not doing exactly what the federal government wants you to do, then they'll threaten to take that away. Now, the only thing they really can do is threaten to take that away. But if you're dependent on that money, then you're more likely to comply than just let them take it away. 
Right. I guess on that vein, what are some measures could Idaho do to try to wean itself off of that federal support or are there current things going on trying to solve that this legislation session or on the horizon? So to try and get off of that federal support, it it would require a lot of kind of digging into the agencies and deciding what programs are really necessary or what programs we probably could do without. So what you'll find is, let's take the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare, for example. A lot, they have a lot of programs that aren't really created by the Idaho legislature. They're created because there was a federal grant available and they applied for the federal grant and then they received money for that grant. And then they were able to create a program using that money. One of the big problems with the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare is that you can make an argument that a lot of different things fall under spending on good health. And so what you see now is they're spending money on transportation infrastructure. So that way you can get to and from your doctor's appointments and they're spending money on renovating parks. So that way people can be outside more because it's healthier to be outside than cooped up in in the house. But, um, and people say, well, why do you oppose that? Well, I think as taxpayers, we should oppose that because we're already spending money on that. We're already putting a lot of money, including federal money, into our transportation infrastructure. Um, We're already putting a lot of money into the um, parks and recreation budget. Um, In fact, last year, we put $100 million into the parks and recreation budget so that way they could renovate and update the parks. And so to double spend on programs like that, where just because federal money was available, it really makes it hard for us to... Responsibly allocate it, right? To the, right. If you're giving it, it to one agency and you say, okay, here, we allocate your money to do this. And then they turn around and say, okay, yeah, but because of our guidelines or objectives of what we're trying to do, okay, we're going to take some of that money you allocated for health. And then we're going to put it towards the things that also the highway district's doing. But you're like, wait, 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 wait. The highway district, we gave you that money. Why is it now double binning over there? That's not where it was supposed to go allocated. Correct. And so I think going through our programs and figuring out what's better operated by the private sector and what is better operated by the government. We want the government to be able to renovate roads and things like that, but we shouldn't be paying for it twice. And then there are certain things that are better done by communities than by the state government. And so uh, identifying where those are and cutting those things will actually be a net benefit to the taxpayer and to the independence of the state from federal control. Being more efficient with the funds we do have but spending them more wisely so they travel farther. Granted, on that note, before we move on to the second point here, I did have a question, and this might be one the viewer has thought of, but one that is in my mind personally, is on that $1.3 billion that we have in reserve in the event that something happens that we're not aware of, that we're not prepared for. I'm curious how that's being like stored or managed. I was wondering if some of that is going into like gold, because I heard last legislative session they were letting the treasurer be able to invest some funds in gold. I was curious if that might be happening with that reserve fund. Yeah. And the bill you're referring to from last year is House Bill 180. And that would have allowed the treasurer to opt to store Idaho's assets in physical gold or silver stored in the state if she chose to. Unfortunately, actually, it passed the House, but then it got stuck in a drawer in the Senate and then forgotten about. So it never actually became law. So actually, under current Idaho law, the treasurer can't store Idaho's assets in the form of physical gold or silver. But what the treasurer does do, though, is she does invest that money to try and inflation-proof it to a degree. 
so usually it'll be put into some sort of a, a bonding program or something like that to make sure that it's making back interest to compensate for the amount of inflation. But if we were able to store those assets in gold or silver, then it would probably require a lot less effort on the treasurer's part. And then Idaho would be custodying that gold and silver here in the state. And so that would further help insulate us from the federal overspending. Okay. I remember reading it and hearing it past that, but then sometimes it is hard to find out. And I have no doubt you understand what I'm saying, but hopefully, have you heard if anything like that might be coming back? Yes. I know that there is at least one bill on that gold and silver bill that will be coming back. It seems like the contention last year was regarding which safes in the state would actually comply with the law. And it actually turned out that there were very few in the state that would. So this year's version will actually expand that a little bit more. So then there would be more safes that you could theoretically store the gold and silver in. So there are some adjustments with that, that, that might help make it a successful piece of legislation. Another thing we talked about on Capital Clarity this week, which is a program from IFF, we talked about um, Bitcoin and digital assets as well. And so that was another thing where we were addressing things like CBDCs, that would be central bank digital currencies and squashing those, but then making sure that we're allowing people to be able to transact in digital currency. Okay, interesting. And I guess moving on from that point and going to our second one here, talking about like the state's budget and stuff. I guess what parts of it should people be most aware about with the specific one and how would they see what's going on with the budget? So I'm, I'm going to address that first part. Um, so as far as parts of the budget to be aware of, people are more intimately going to be aware of things that are happening in the public schools budget, for instance. So we're looking at probably spending is starting to kind of slow down in the public schools budget. There's a bunch of federal funding from COVID that are starting to wind down and be spent out. And so you'll start seeing a reduction in that. But the, the thing is that public schools have received over the last three years more than a billion dollars in new funding. But we're really not seeing any improvement in student performance. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. There, there are several school choice bills that are coming out this year that may impact the public school's budget, but also offer parents more options in the public, on the public school side of things. Another thing to be interested in, and conservatives are particularly interested in, is if you go to the Department of Health and Welfare's budget, we're looking at some growth in the welfare programs as well. The Division of Medicaid is growing quite substantially. And that was really interesting too, because this last year we were finally able to cut people off the rolls who were ineligible for the program. Under COVID, we weren't allowed to cut people who were ineligible from the program. And so we saw a drop in the budget and then it's slowly coming back up to where it was. So it's almost like a net zero uh, from last year as far as an increase goes. There's a bunch of transportation infrastructure projects that the governor is working on. He's looking at probably about $800 million that he's going to spend on a 20-year bonding program to expand our infrastructure. So that means wider roads or more roads or maybe roads that aren't paved for the level of traffic that they're on that will end up being getting repaved and things like that. Um, so that's something that people are going to note. Those are all things that people are going to notice in their day to day with budgeting. To address your second part, as far as how to track the budget, dig into the budget and look at what's going on in the budget. If you go to the main legislature's uh, website, so it would be uh, legislature.idaho.gov. And then there's a tab at the top that says budget information. 
And that's really great because it has a lot of charts and graphics. It shows you how spending has changed over time. You can see that um, spending has grown quite a bit over even just since a few years ago. And you can also go through and, and see what the budget actions are on each individual agency as well, and what the agencies were requesting, what the governor recommended. So that's a really great resource. Even at the Idaho Freedom Foundation, we have the spending index. It's something that I work on over the legislative session. You'll find that we're not like Washington, D.C. We don't have one budget bill that everybody votes on. We have about 120 budget bill that everybody votes on. And so it can be really hard for the average person to comb through all those. So my job is to comb through those, figure out what's good about them, what's bad about them, flag those things, and then put it into a succinct analysis for people to read. Well, I've enjoyed your content and used it other times for resources here on the show, just for that very reason right there, because trying to read through all of those, especially when they almost seem to come out in waves and batches and you almost drown in the process of trying to go through them all. So thank you for doing that work. It's very, very helpful. And then I guess looping back around towards the topic with the governor, right? I think the big thing I remember hearing with his state of the state speech that there was a lot of different spending things that he was wanting to do. Obviously, one of those that us as Idahoans, I think, for the most part, agree on is that we need to keep ahead on our infrastructure. And so it's glad to hear that we're trying to allocate those funds accordingly, right? The second one, was it education that he was trying to... Yes. So that was another thing. So I think we agree on the point that our infrastructure does need some help given the number of people that are moving in. But uh, one of the problems that we found from the Idaho Freedom Foundation is that the, the governor is using a bonding program to not only do this infrastructure project, but also another bonding program for school facilities updates and things like that. Now, in addition to these bonding programs, he is also supporting them with federal infrastructure funding instead of trying to keep it local. And so that's just another example of federal spending increases. The Inflation Reduction Act is being used to support a lot of these transportation projects and things like that. And our concern specifically is if you're taking these federal money and you're spending them on ongoing projects. The school facilities thing in particular, he said that he wants to spend $2 billion over the next 10 years to update school facilities. So that's about $200 million per year. And it, it's, it is through a bonding program. So Idaho is going out and we're borrowing money to be able to do that. It's not money that we have. It's not even federal money. We're, we're encumbering the next 10 years of Idaho legislatures saying that we, we have to spend money on this particular thing. The problem with that, though, is we actually have more than a billion dollars sitting in rainy day funds in the schools themselves. And those end up coming back out of the school budget, and then they get redistributed to schools in need. So there's a lot of money floating around in the school budget, and there's a lot of bonds and levies that have already passed locally to do this same thing. So it almost seems like more of a political move than it is to better balance the budget and to ensure that we're correctly allocating the money. And so those are our concerns with it, but mostly because Idaho is borrowing money to sustain these projects. And $2 billion is a lot of money. 
Yeah, billion with a B. I know we've gotten used to in the 21st century of hearing millions, but billion is still one of those things that I think uh, only a handful of companies can boast. Yeah, with the school part, you've heard a bit of my opinion on that, and we were talked about one of your stories, me and John, one of our previous shows. And I know with the bomb part, there are a couple I know across the state have failed to get that funding. But this aversion, as we've talked about earlier, and kind of a thread that seems to be going through our conversation here, is this tendency to want to go after federal funds rather than having an aversion, which would be a far more conservative, and I would argue, and I think you would agree with me, way better thing long term for Idahoans. I do agree. And just, again, we already talked about the the problem with being reliant on those federal funds. The bonds here in particular, just keep in mind that every year the legislature has to uh, make the budget and decide how they're going to allocate the funding. Uh, Based on the governor's recommendation, they may consider it, they may not. Pulling out bonds to support the school facilities and to renovate those school facilities it just seems like we're spending a lot of money on public schools, but we're not really seeing any progress. It is true that local bonds and levies have failed. But keep in mind that, for instance, the one in West Data School District, that was a half a billion dollar levy. And they wanted to spend it on things like childcare for teachers and things like that. They had nothing to do with student performance. They had nothing to do with updating their facilities and things like that. So... When you actually get down to it, you go, okay, well, why aren't we spending money on the things that matter? So why are there schools in disrepair? Why are there schools that aren't able to stay within their allotted budget? And some people would say that it's probably because there's an issue with the funding formula. The issue that I think I'm finding is you can't move money between different funding categories. The public school's budget is actually split into five different funding categories. You have children's programs, you have facilities, you pay for teachers separately from everything else, administration, et cetera, et cetera. They're all set. And some, and when you look at the budget and you look at how much money is left over every year, you'll find that some schools just don't need to spend very much on administration or some schools spend less on teachers or some schools spend less on students. And Perhaps it would be a benefit for us to open that up and let schools spend money on what they actually need to spend money on. Or maybe instead of five categories, we break it down into a handful of maybe three categories. So that way they end up spending less in one category, then they can transfer the money over into another category where they actually need it. Instead of just sending more and more and more money to the public schools and centralizing the process at the state level, and maybe making a district decision instead. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, if I'm understanding correctly, you're saying that it would probably be better that, okay, we're giving these funds, but to make the public school more efficient, to try to decentralize that a little bit and give more autonomy down the chain of those different schools, right? With how they're pulling those funds and being able for them to transfer them across because right now they can't do that as much. They have to stay within the parameters that the state level gives them. Correct. And it's all distributed based on a formula, too. So the formula may or may not work for the needs of the school district themselves. And when you look at like a public school or even a charter school, the money that they get, they're able to decide how best to allocate those funds. And this is partially why you see that a private school and charter school will perform better than a public school. And they can adjust their funding to their needs and they can uh, decide how best they can be competitive with the money that they have. With a public school, they're just kind of pigeonholed into those different things. So I think that the answer would be to let the public school district decide how best to allocate those funds based on what they actually need. 
Okay. And I guess on that topic, part of my initial reaction to that is there, there we have option one, which is reforming or doing adjustments to the public school, which obviously public school is going to be around for quite a bit longer. And so some reforms are needed, right? Make it efficient, be honest with our money. But if we're sitting there where we want to allocate new funds, why are we wanting to pour more money into a system that seems to struggle with the way it's allocating its funds rather than putting those towards, and you gave the example there with more private schools or charter schools, why is there an issue or a reason we can't send more of those funds to places that actually spend them a lot more wisely? So let me make sure I'm understanding that question. So are, are you saying that instead of giving them funds to public schools, giving those to private and charter schools instead? Is that the question? Yeah. So I think to some degree, so you, you want to be careful with something like that. You don't want to subsidize a market good because what we end up with is a similar situation to what we have with health insurance right now under Obamacare. We've subsidized health insurance plans. And so now they're really expensive for the average person to be able to afford because it shifted the price up. So it actually makes it less affordable when you subsidize it. But the school choice programs are a little bit different. So what you would end up doing is instead of, for all the families that have chosen to homeschool or send their children to a private school instead, they would not have, they, they would get a tax credit for the public school services that they're not using. So instead of having to pay for school twice, they can actually take that money that they had before they had to pay for public schools, and they can actually use it for the education choices that they chose to pursue instead that work out better for them. And so I think that's a really big argument for school choice and why it's necessary for us to do that. The thing is, that's not really a budget thing that we can do by setting the budget that would require a policy change that would require us to pass a separate piece of legislation that would create that program and allow people to be able to take ownership of their money a little bit more and decide and allow parents to decide how best to ensure that their children are getting the education they need. Right. Which I think is a a very fair legislation. And I I hope it works its way through that at least that option is available to parents with, you know, like we talked about earlier, strings, right? But that they can at least say, hey, you, you did pay this amount of money in tax dollars, but you're not actually reaping the benefit, right? You're not going to public schools and different things and you've chosen a different form of education, but allowing parents to have that, which I think is a good move. And one thing that I want to make sure, the point that I want to drive home, the difference between subsidizing private education and doing a school choice program. If you're subsidizing private education, all you're doing is saying, as the state, you're saying, okay, instead of taking $2 billion and giving it to public schools, we're just going to write a check and send it directly to private schools or uh, charter schools instead. Whereas with the school choice program, the money goes to the parent. It doesn't go to the school, it goes to the parent and it follows the student. And so then the parent gets to decide how best that money is allocated. So those monies for school choice, they're not just spent on tuition. They're spent on school supplies. They may be spent on the, the tuition itself. But the, the point is that the parent is in control of that money because it was theirs to begin with. Whereas if you're subsidizing a market good like private school, money is going directly to that. The government has decided who gets what and how much. And that that stifles the market instead of building the market like a school choice program would. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I can see what you're talking about, those differences. I hadn't quite realized that. So I'm really glad you pointed that out on that topic. 
Granted, I do have one question, which is with the current legislation, because I know it's not passed yet from what I'm aware of, right? There isn't a blank chat also being given to the parent when with those school choice. It has to be used for educational purposes only, right? So it, it depends on the bill that we're talking about. If you're talking about an education tax credit, it's a tax credit. So you would just get that money back. But if we're talking about ESA program, or which is an education savings account program, what that would do is kind of what you're saying, where parents would get an account with a debit card tied to it, and they would spend money on proved purchases for education. And so the, there is a difference. There is a bill out there that's a hybrid between the two. It's called an ESA tax credit. So those nuances, they vary between the legislation and what we've been talking about from year to year. But the national studies have found that not only has school choice improved public school performance, but they also make schools a little more affordable. Okay, cool. And then I guess as we're obviously, we've officially gotten into the weeds, the small picture, right? The next question I had here, and I know it's a tricky question, and off the top of my head, I know this isn't as much tied to the Idaho legislature, but it is the most common question I've gotten for people, both preparing for our conversation and just in general when talking about economics in the state, is what is the legislature doing and could do to help with the local economy and all the really crazy inflation we've had lately, specifically on like the food and fuel areas? The answer from the governor seems to be we need to spend more money on the local economy, but our organization's stance on this is actually we need to spend less money in general. So if we're taking all this federal money and we're contributing to Washington, D.C. style spending and printing to be able to fund our initiatives, then we're contributing to the inflation just as much as any of the other states and just as much as the Biden administration. And so... I think it's important for us to make sure that we are cutting back on our own spending at the state level. One of the things, too, that the legislature is trying to do is they're trying to be more scrupulous with the new ongoing expenditures. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to split budget the, the amount of funding that's required to maintain current levels of government and current programs from all the new actors. So the legislature can vote on those separately. So you can vote to sustain the Idaho State Police, but you, you don't have to fund all of those line items that they're asking for as well. You can uh, look at those two things separately and you can say, okay, well, I want to sustain the existing government as it is, but let's take a deeper dive into all of these new expenditures that they want to um, bring on. And a lot of them aren't actually necessary. The agency will always tell you that it's necessary. Uh, they, they, in, in fairness, they could always use more money for something. But the question needs to be for, on the part of the legislature, how can uh, we make sure that we're not burdening uh, the taxpayer with all of these new expenditures, especially if they go into the base budget, they become an ongoing expense when they continue for years and years and years. And so that's something that the legislature is trying to do. It's counter to what the governor was interested in. And so it's actually become a really big fight this last week in particular of how we're going to decide whether or not we're going to vote for increases. Okay, so trying to sit there and separate the half of, you know, the governor, he's wanting to say the problem with inflation, why the average person, things are more expensive for them. We need to spend more money on the local economy to then hopefully drive down costs, right? Try to stimulate it 
in a sense. But your guys' more answer trying at the local level to solve that. Let's try to split the two when we're doing our spending. Let's split it between the existing budget and then talk separately about the other new line items, but you it makes it harder for people to vilify, you know, you're not wanting to support blah, 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 the police or whatever. No, no, I want to support the police. I'm willing to spend for their existing cost, right? But I do want to have a closer look and vote separately on those additions to it. Do I have that right? Yes, that's exactly correct. And here's the thing too, more money in the pockets of the taxpayer is always going to be the best stimulus can be better than the government just giving funding the industries that they think will be best. It's better to let the market kind of decide what that's going to be. I did some calculations last night, actually, where we were looking at the difference between if we sustained current levels of government, basic operations just to keep the lights on and everything running versus all of the new increases, the new apps, and all of the additional things you got to roll into the budget this year, or they want to roll into the budget this year. That delta ends up being about $1.5 billion. And if you compare the maintenance of government spending, which is about $12.1 billion, to projected revenues, what you end up seeing, and this is exclusively, so let's say we forget about the federal funding for now, which ends up being about $560 million. Forget about the dedicated funding. We're just looking at the general funds. We're just looking at the taxes that Idahoans are paying. If you were to say no to all of those increases, that's $266 back into the pockets of every man, woman, and child in the state of Idaho. And every new line item, every additional dollar spent is another dollar taken from them. And so putting it into that kind of a perspective, the legislature needs to be very careful about what they decide to spend more money on because $266 can go a long way for a family that's struggling to afford groceries or gas or make their rent month to month. And so the question needs to be, who's going to be better at spending this money? Is it going to be the government spending on new programs or is it going to be families deciding how to spend it on what they need? Right. And I guess coming back to that, that main fight with the transparency stuff, and this might seem like a no-brainer question, but why is the reason that some people would dislike that level of transparency or trying to separate the two from each other with the maintenance costs, right? The standard costs and then the added costs that they're wanting to add on. Why would they be opposed to having that level of transparency and that separation? So our understanding with that is the governor obviously wants his priorities passed. He has, the budget book is a summary of everything the governor is asking the legislature for. In years past, it's pretty much been just rubber stamp from year to year. There aren't very many instances where previous legislatures have made a lot of cuts to the governor's recommendation. A lot of establishment folks, a lot of people who are more on the spectrum of big spending, they definitely favor being able to spend more on government program without it looking like they're spending more on government program. So it's pretty obvious if you cast a vote to spend more on all the increases versus if you were a little more particular about what increases you were going to fund. So splitting it up takes away the veil 
and it makes it harder for the governor to get everything he asked for. He runs the agencies, and so these are his agencies that he wants to see funded. He has priorities for those agencies. The reason why I bring the governor up is isn't speculation. I saw an article yesterday in the Idaho Capital Sun where the governor had commented about how the, he had concerns that the new process was going to make it harder for all of the increases to uh, be approved. And so th those are concerns that a lot of the more establishment people have with this new process. But at least with this new process, you can see who's spending what, and who's voting for increases. And naturally, there will be increases over time. And some are legitimate, but Others, and the vast majority of them, are new programs that we should probably be a little more careful about deciding to fund. I would argue that having transparency is rarely a bad thing. And so more accountability, especially with financial parts and more transparency, I think is a great thing. I don't know how well it works. I thought it was a great idea. Maybe you can shed some light on this. That the, I don't want to call it the Luma system because that's its own nightmare. Um, but they, I think it was the treasurer or whatever, put out like a new website where you can go now and look at different counties and different municipalities and see their budgets. And then you can see how much they're bringing in and graphs and stuff. And I thought that was a wonderful resource and really glad that that got developed. Yeah, that's the state controllers project. And for those listeners who don't know the difference, the treasurer is in charge of a lot of the accounts and how the money is managed when they're in the accounts. And then the controller's office is a completely separate constitutional office that he had. His job is to monitor how money is leaving those accounts and how spending and revenue is being accounted for and tracked. And his office is actually considerably larger than the treasurer's office. He runs the Lula system and maintains that. But then you also have things like Transparent Idaho, where then they take all the data that they've been collecting on state spending and revenues and they put it on a website so that people can see. That was a project that he initiated, Brandon Wolf, the state controller, and it, it's actually probably one of my favorite projects that um, they, they've been working on and especially being able to go see. There's not a lot of transparency at, this, at the local and county level, and so to have that resource is actually great. And, you know, if you don't know on this, this is fine. I had some people stating concerns about how accurate or how up to date it is that with the issues with Luma and stuff, that there's been a problem with county clerks actually updating it and keeping it accountable. So when people are looking at that, do you know how accurate or up to date is it? I would say at this point, it's probably a trust but verify kind of a system. Luma is one issue, at least for the first quarter last fiscal year, we actually had no idea how much revenue we were getting because it wasn't tracking it. But then what a lot of people don't know is the agencies actually weren't able to spend very much either because they couldn't write checks. Um, and so <laughs> there, there, were, there, were, there were some issues with that. So there was kind of a backlog of spending for that first quarter of the fiscal year. And so, yes, there are some issues with Luma. One of the things the controller told me that they were having issues with, not every county and not every locality will group the money into the same category across the state. They're all, every budget is going to look a little bit different. They do it all different. They have the right to do it differently. And, but that means that when you're trying to compare across jurisdictions and when you're trying to enter it all into a data system like that, it may not be very consistent. So. It's just a nuance of how we have different levels of government. 
I can't speak to the accuracy of the information that's entered. It would be very difficult for us to actually tell whether or not it is accurate, but for the most part, it's just the differences between the jurisdiction. Okay. So similar to how, you know, you don't want to believe everything you find out on the internet, right? That you go search it and you're like, okay, cool. I, I use this. I take note of it. And then I go and then cross verify it. Right. But like things on the internet, make sure to go verify it and double check it before taking it as gospel. Would you be, would that be correct? I'd say that's, that's perfectly accurate. So yeah, staying on the topic of like transparency and closing us out here with our last question, how could people most effectively communicate to their representatives how they wish that money to be or not to be spent? I think that the best thing to do would be to legislators get a lot of emails and they get a lot of phone calls. And so it can actually be really challenging to get a hold of your lawmakers. Um, I would say that, especially in the House of Representatives, they're actually pretty good about picking up their phone and making sure that they're listening to their constituents. So I'd say giving your lawmaker a call, all of their contact information's on the on the legislative website. That's still legislature.idaho.gov. But then also making sure you, you can send an email. You might not get a response, but that doesn't mean that they didn't see it. And asking them to consider how they're going to vote on different spending increases when they actually go to the floor. If you're fortunate enough to have lawmakers that sit in the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee, there, there are 20 lawmakers um, that get that privilege to set the budget at the committee level, then I think that you have even more of a benefit to reach out to those lawmakers and ask them to consider how they're spending your money. Especially, I know that people in Eagle and District 14, Eagle and Emmett, they have two lawmakers on, on JFAG actually that they can reach out to and contact and make their make their voice heard at the committee level. And so I'd say just reaching out and letting them know what you think. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, that's something that I try to recommend as well, that it goes a long way that, you know, as you said, they're busy, but also I've heard from other ones, oftentimes a lot of people don't take the time to just be it an email, right? That's the easiest or simplest or pick up the phone to make a phone call. And it can make a huge effect, especially when you're talking about local lawmakers, be it at our state level or at even local level in your county or your city, because a lot of times they don't get a lot of interaction. And if they get an interaction, it has a huge effect. I agree with that. When I worked at the Senate, we got so many phone calls and they were always, they, it was very difficult for um, us to respond to all of them. But when you're talking about something as small as the local level, your local lawmaker, they're far more accessible than people even realize, actually. And they're there to serve you. They're there to understand your opinion on things. And they're, they're representing you. So make your voice heard. Okay. So I guess breaking it down here as we're closing out this segment or the conversation here, biggest things takeaway for people to kind of be involved or stuff is that one, you have the Transparency Idaho that they can go look at that at and then try to cross check that. And that's a really accessible resource as for keeping, you know, people accountable and their representatives, you know, just email or phone call. Right. And then also listening to resources, shameless plug, right. For your stuff, fiscal Fridays that breaks that down a bit, listening to local local Idaho, other outlets that are trying to cover that. And part of our job here that we try to do for all of you, I agree, likewise with the Idaho Freedom Foundation, is to try to take all that time that you guys don't have to boil that down and to give those sources so that you guys can all find out. And I guess closing that out here, is there any stuff that you want to plug? Obviously, you've got your Fiscal Friday. 
Right. So every week on Thursdays during the noon lunch hour, the Idaho Freedom Foundation hosts an event called Capital Clarity. It's hosted right there at the Capitol in the Lincoln Auditorium. And it provides an opportunity for people to interact with their lawmakers, interact with the decision makers in our state, and understand the issues, be able to ask questions, and connect with their government. And so we, if, if you're down here in the Treasure Valley or if you're stopping by, We'd love to see you in person, but we also stream it on all of our media platforms on X, on Facebook, on YouTube and Rumble. So that way people across the state can interact and ask questions and participate. Of course, we have Fiscal Fridays every Friday to kind of break down what happened in JFAC and the major budget news and help people kind of get a good five minute overview of what's going on. But then a new project that we're releasing is called Two Cents with IFF. And basically, that's a, a very short 60 second or less kind of a video where as news is coming out or as something that there's a lot of confusion about comes out and we're getting a lot of questions from people, we're able to do this kind of short form video so that way people have a short explainer on what's going on. So a lot of resources, a lot of things to, to take in. Our Freedom Index is also a really great way to understand what bills are coming through, where they're at, and what they do and how they affect your freedom. So feel free to go to our website and utilize those resources. Well, thank you for coming on, Nicholas. I think those are great stuff. I would recommend that to everyone. I know the Capital Clarity, it is recorded, but also if you want to listen to it live, which, you know, live has its own perks, right? But you can get to it later and enjoy it and stuff like that. And Fiscal Fridays, I've found those to be an awesome resource. And I look forward to seeing how the two cent stuff goes. Hopefully that works out all nice and smoothly for you guys as well. But thank you for coming on and we'll close out the episode here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Local Yokel Idaho podcast, where our mission is to help you be informed, engaged, and involved in this wonderful state of Idaho that we call home. A special thank you to Nicholas Kleinworth for coming on the show. Hopefully we can have him back again in the future. That's all for now. And I wish you a fantastic rest of your week. Godspeed. <laughs>